Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism, Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. All right. Glory to Jesus Christ, everyone. Glory forever. Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, um, our monthly webinar series. Uh, it's, we're rolling along through Christ our Pascha, the Ukrainian Catholic Catechism. Great to be with everyone. Very much look forward to these things. It's getting together with old friends at this point. It's it's really, it's been a joy. It's been a joy. So um, our distinguished panelists uh, have not changed. So we're, we're very happy to have Father Daniel Dozier with us again. Good to see you, Father. You as well. Thank you. Uh, Father Michael Wynn joining us from the Great White North. Good to see it's you, Father. White. It's not white right now, but... Not right now. <laughs> it's good to have a reprieve from that, you know, the frigid temperatures from time to time, mm -hmm. part of the Lord's consolation. And Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, good to have Hi, you Robert. with us again. Um, you all know kind of a little bit about us by now, so no use to go through our CVs at this point, um, because I really wanted to get to a, a very special announcement in this month's webinar. We have a new sponsor. Uh, we're grateful for the Eparchy of Phoenix sponsorship, as well as Vineyard of the Lord Catholic Ministries, and we're very proud and blessed to announce the sponsorship of this series from Paul Shiptitsky Institute. So we're very, very excited to have them on board uh, supporting this outreach and this ministry. Um, it's, it's a blessing to have them aboard, and they're going to help us kind of keep going and expand this, um, because as I'm fond of saying, all we're trying to do is reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's on board. Um, reach. We're going to keep the series going and keep trying to uh, grow the vineyard of the Lord more and more. So it's great to have them aboard with us. Um, now, of course, that being said, that doesn't mean the bills go away. So if you would like to make a donation, you can do that through Father Daniel's Parish, St. George. Uh, their website has a little link to uh, making donations. I'm going to post that in the chat momentarily because every little bit helps. Um, Mother Angelica, I think, had it right, you know, keep us between your guys, um, because it does help keep the lights on, um, and keep the technology up to date, uh, despite the weather. So please visit Father Daniel's Parish page for more information on how to donate. So thank you very much for your support, for your prayers, and for, uh, we give glory and thanks to God for expanding this ministry. And finally, before we get to our opening prayer, um, do visit our YouTube channel. I'm going to post that in the chat, um, but that also helps us out when you hop online and you visit our YouTube channel um, and you like and subscribe to our channel and pass our videos around on social media. Um, that helps tremendously with the algorithm. So please do continue to do that. And with that being said, I'm going to ask Father Deacon Anthony to lead us in an opening prayer. Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Advocate, Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and fill all things, treasure of blessings, bestower of life, come and dwell within us, 
cleanse us of all that defiles us, and a good one, save our souls. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Deacon Anthony. Appreciate that. Always good to begin things with prayer. And we've got a lot to discuss today. And we're going to probably shave about 15 minutes off just because uh, Father Daniel's got more uh, more apostolic ministry to do uh, with, with uh, and it's been a long week anyway. But we've got a lot to cover. Great section in the catechism. Really fantastic on marriage and family life, kind of living out the gospel message through uh, through marriage, through human sexuality, through all that stuff that our culture is really struggling with. So we're going to tackle some some difficult difficult things, and and always with uh, with the love of Christ uh, first and foremost in displaying the church's teaching. So this first section is from Christ Our Pascha, it's eight fifty six to eight seventy three, and so Father Daniel, I wanted to start with you because this section talks about the family as the domestic church. Um, and I'm always surprised how many people, um, they've been Catholic their whole lives, and they hear that, you know, the family is the domestic church, and they have no idea what you're talking about. So I wanted to delve into that a little bit more deeply. What do we mean when we call the family the domestic church? And I guess, how does that play out in family life? Yeah, it's a, uh, I think it's an important question for a lot of reasons. Um, one is, uh, well, first of all, when we think about the church, we oftentimes refer to the church as a spiritual family. Uh, and so uh, for us, when we think about our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, the fact that we have spiritual fathers and mothers that uh, help in service to the church, we understand our, our Christian calling, our vocation as a church in familial terms. Uh, and so um, that's, that's the first, first thing to, to consider uh, when, we, when we think about the family as a domestic church is that the, the, the church itself is a spiritual family. And then I think if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, God's, uh, God's creation right at the beginning, you know, the first form of the kingdom of God, we we celebrate the kingdom of God as, as central to the Eucharistic mystery and our identity as a church. Well, the kingdom of God began in, uh, in, a, in a domestic church uh, that between Adam and Eve and uh, God, uh, you know, giving them life and, and commissioning them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh, and basically planting them, uh, if you will, like, like spiritual trees uh, in a, a, a garden, a temple garden, and there they would serve uh, the Lord, and um, there, there they would also uh, ideally be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth, and then extend paradise beyond just the temple garden, but to extend it across the whole world. That was that was part of their great commission uh, to, to do that. So when we think about a family, then a family as the image of the new creation with a new Adam and a new Eve, which is all throughout. It pervades the the service of our of crowning the mystery of crowning. Very clearly, there is there's something very, there's intentional there uh, to highlight what Paul talks about in Ephesians. You know that this image of of Christ's love for the church is found in the mystery of husband and wife united in in a covenant of love, and a fruitful and life giving and love giving uh, covenant. That that is the image that. I think it helps us to understand what is the ideal to which we are called. 
um, as we as we strive to live uh, our life as a family. Now, practically speaking, how do we live that out? Um, you know, there are obviously extremes on either side of the continuum. The you've got the you know the family that seems to almost inhabit sort of a monastic space, and uh, and that's that's not that's not quite what domestic life is intended to be. Uh, although it is intended to be pious and and to pray, you know, the prayers of the church, especially highlighting the liturgical seasons, living the fasts and the feasts, and you know, having the icons. In fact, <clears throat> I think one point of a real connection between families and the church is uh, through their icon corner. And icons, um, you know, it's, uh, certain Byzantine traditions, for instance, bless icons on the holy table. So you'll see the, an icon placed on the holy table, and then they have the celebration of the divine liturgy. And if it's a if it's a real icon, it could stay for as long as 40 days on the holy table. So you've got the Holy Spirit being called down upon the holy table. And then, then you have a special blessing of that icon, and it's given to the family, and then it goes up in the icon corner. And the icon corner is, is really a place where the family gathers for prayer. Uh, they, they pray at least the usual prayers together, and, and then perhaps maybe they do part of the horologion, part of the divine praises. Um, but, uh, but it really is that connection between the, the altar of the home and the altar of the church. That, that's, not a, that's not a well-known quote from St. John Chrysostom, but he talks about this idea that uh, you know, there, we have these altars in life. There is the, the altar of the church, the altar of the, um, of the home, and the altar of the marketplace. And, and these three altars are united, and that's where we serve in a, in a priestly way uh, through our lives by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. So to sum up this idea, um, this idea that we need to be thinking about or focusing on that, that the home as a domestic church also means that we're exercising a priestly ministry of self-giving. And, uh, and then that charity would extend beyond just the walls of the home into our neighborhoods, into uh, schools and marketplace and so forth. So I, I don't know if that's a fair summary, but that's, that's at least one way I would summarize the the idea of the, of the family as a domestic church. It's a beautiful vocation, um, and you know, discovering it every day as as being married and having six kids, and um, the beauty the beauty of domestic life, especially in the raising of children in the faith, um, is something that that all Christian marriages should really, um, gosh, we need to appreciate it more. We really do. It's such a treasure. That being said, now that's the beautiful side. That's the beautiful side of things. But because we're we're kind of entering into this discussion of of human sexuality, when you when you study the church's teaching, um, it's it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Um, but here we find ourselves as church in this time of of mass confusion and and really mass propaganda as to. Um, Human sexuality can't be defined. It's this way one week, it's this way the next. Um, and it's always up in our face. Um, and so we, we need to talk about that as church. So I thought we, we could do that right now, delving into, I guess, a basic question towards Father, uh, Father Daniel and then leading to Father Michael, because I know he's got some things prepared for us um, on the, the topic of transgenderism. But Father Daniel, if you could give us a, a couple sentences on, just generally speaking, um, what is the meaning of human sexuality 
um, as taught to us by our church? So human sexuality, first of all, it's, it, it, it pertains to our identity. So you could, you could relate human sexuality as, as part of our identity, both uh, our created identity uh, and that initial commission from God to be fruitful and multiply. Um, and so uh, sexuality is God's gift to us that we might be a gift to each other. And in that gift to create uh, or to procreate new life. Um, and so God in making man and woman uh, made them uh, complementary uh, so that when they would come together, uh, the two becoming one flesh, that one flesh uh, union would be would uh, two persons would result in a third person, uh, which would be uh, the gift of new life. That sexuality itself is is an expression of Trinitarian life of God's own uh, self-giving within the uh, of the three of the three divine persons uh, in the Holy Trinity, and that imaging uh, a, a more perfect um, icon, if you will, of the family. I think the Catechism makes reference to that. The Patriarchal uh, Letter makes reference to that. Um, so I think, in a, in a nutshell, if you want to summarize this idea of of sex, human sexuality, it is part of our identity as man and woman, um, and it's also part of our commission uh, to uh, to procreate to fill the earth and that's only truly possible uh between a man and a woman um and uh I, I ideally taking place obviously within the covenant commitment of marriage um and so that that commitment of you know, i do uh if, if there are vows or i'm you know you're crowning and and you're you've been crowned together in in covenant uh it's it's a it's a lifelong um and exclusive union in marriage that really is the right context for uh, the welcoming of new life because that permanent commitment provides that stable uh, place um, and uh, for for a child to be raised. So I, 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 I does that clarify um, kind of what, what, what we'd say about the church's teaching then on sexuality? I think so. Okay. Unless our, our panelists have anything else to add because kind of the the elephant in the room, because we're, we're dealing with it constantly, um, it, it seems like in our media that that question of what does sexuality mean is so, it, it seems to be like the, the center, person, right, at least as presented in, in, in the media, um, and especially involving the, the question of transgenderism. So this is something that, um, Father Michael, I know that from your church, Ukrainian Catholic Church, Patriarch Shvetoslav, Put out an encyclical on uh, gender gender identity issues. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little detail and background of that document and, and sum it up within our our modern context. Sure, um, it's an encyclical. It's signed by him, but it's from all the synod of bishops of uh, Kiev and Halych. So it's um, it's a it's it's an incredible document and was released in 2016. Uh, there is a priest, Father Ihor Boyko. He's the rector of our seminary in Lviv, Holy Spirit Seminary in Lviv. And this is his area of study, uh, is dealing with gender ideology. So as, as you know, I, I think, uh, I hope I'm not opening up, uh, you know, Pandora's box for people here, but uh, usually bishops uh, or popes or patriarchs, they may not be the ones who actually write the letter, but they will go through it and make corrections and, and so forth. And um, so that their name uh, 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 on it at the end is it, it is their work. 
but I think Father Ihor has not said anything to me, but I think he's behind most of this work because it is his specialty, or at least he was at least consulted on it. So as Ukraine has become free over the years, um, and the church is beginning to flourish again, uh, now for 20, 25 years, um, the, uh, there's a concern about how society is changing and is changing so quickly and being influenced by uh, some of the philosophical presuppositions of the West. And uh, part of that has to do with sexual identity. And uh, so, um, the, Father, you have the document in your hand, I see right there. And, and what I'll do is, as soon as I'm finished, I will put in the, in the chat a link to the document uh, itself so that people can either read it online or download it as a PDF. So essentially, it just goes through and it talks about how sexuality uh, is actually part of what it means to be a human being. It, it contextualizes it, so very much what Father was saying. The dignity, the worth, and there's something in there It says the beauty of a human being is found in that sexual expression, especially in marriage and so forth. But the philosophical presuppositions uh, that have been ongoing in Western society for hundreds of years already, and that's another discussion as what philosopher to blame uh, for that, but um, it is more and more becoming, uh, as just written recently, uh, atomized uh, you know, uh, to the individual, that we're being broken down Instead of the family being the basic unit of society, um, I think in, in North American culture or Western, the Western culture, it's the person is seen as that. And even the person is being atomized, broken up into individual pieces and so forth. And so there is uh, um, now uh, an attempt to, well, it's not just an attempt, it's actually happened and been enshrined in a lot of policies here in Canada and the US and other places around the world. We're now, um, we can now define ourselves as who we seem fit. So it's based upon feeling how I feel on one particular day uh, or, or particular days. Um, and I decide that I am no longer a man, but I'm a woman, or I'm no longer a woman, or I'm a man. Or because now we've broken the human person up in such a manner we can now even make new definitions that I am non-binary, I am asexual, I am pansexual, I'm, and now it's even gone even further to, uh, this is in the United States, I, can, I don't know where in that blessed land, but there are students who believe they're cats, and they speak to each other in meowing, and the school has put litter boxes in the washrooms. Um, yes, it's absolutely true. <laughs> Absolutely true. So what's happened is that this, this letter on gender ideology is all about just kind of bringing it up into the mind of uh, the church, especially in Ukraine. But because it was translated into English immediately, I think it's intended for the entire world as well, is just to see, uh, bring it up our minds so we understand how it's constantly pressing in on Christians uh, for um, a disordered understanding of sexuality and a disordered understanding of the human person the two i mean you can't if you speak about a human person they're sexual beings you, you just can't get away from that we relate in all ways as sexual beings you know i just spoke about today about you know a man being men how we'd rather figure out where we're going 
without a map or GPS. Don't worry, I'll find my way. And we will never ask our wife who's got the GPS or the map beside us. We'd rather stop and open a window and talk to a man on the road than and all that. So there's so one of the sexual ways in which we relate is this, I can take care of it, you know? And, um, and uh, so this letter is important for us to realize how transgenderism or gendered ideology is a distortion of, of what we understand, not only from our faith, but even from essential human biology as a, a disordered understanding of the human person. So, yeah. Great. Thank you, Father. Yeah, it's, it's a document that I only learned about a few years ago. And what struck me and what continues to strike me about it is the Catholic teaching is very much a, a human sexuality is part of the integrated person, right? Mm -hmm. It's integrated. But our kind of gender ideology seeks to disintegrate the person. And then all of a sudden, you've got all these disintegrated parts. Well, one's got to shine, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, it's sexual identity. But that's not the totality of the human person. It's a very important part of the human person. And it, but it all works together as part of an integrated whole, right? When you disintegrate it, it doesn't work. Um, and it leads to further confusion and further disintegration. But that document really emphasizes the need for an integrated approach to the human person, which is really what I, I loved about it. And it's nice at the very end of it, it goes through different um, circles of the church. You know, uh, uh, if you're involved in, in government, please do this. If you're a mom and dad, please do this and yeah. so forth. So it was, it's a very instrumental and hopeful document. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's posted now there in, in the chat. Thank you, Father Michael, for doing that. It's, it's really worth, worth time to read and to think on. Very good. All right. Uh, moving on to, uh, well, yet another kind of negative topic, but very important. Um, the Catechism in paragraphs 866 through 868 talks about both marital fidelity and the importance of marital fidelity, but kind of the, the dark side of that is marital infidelity, um, which is, again, it's kind of a rampant thing in our culture. Um, the divorce rate in our culture is, is still hovering over 50%. Um, we have you know, laissez-faire attitudes towards faithfulness to one's spouse. Uh, and one particular struggle that I wanted to ask uh, Father Deacon Anthony about um, that's affecting the male population is uh, addiction to pornography, which can, which can put a tremendous strain on, on a marriage. So I wanted to ask, and, and certainly wanted to ask um, our priests in, in terms of uh, their, their experience in, in helping people with this issue, because it is so pervasive in our culture. Uh, but starting with you, Father Deacon Anthony, how can we help pastorally um, people to, uh, and especially husbands, to recover from this really, this pandemic of, of pornography in our culture? Yeah, this is a huge problem. Uh, I work with college students, and I, I have many opportunities to talk with them and hear about their problems. And this is a huge problem with young people and with older people. Uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, pornography was hard to come by. Um, you had to look for it, you had to make an effort to find it. Now it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's as close as a phone, right? And a lot of young people 
are getting technology at a very young age and finding pornography. I mean, imagine when you were a 11 or 12 year old boy and curious, if you had a phone, you could type in whatever you imagined and it came up. Um, that's where we're at. But the problem with pornography is it's addictive. Now, the porn industry has spent a lot of money combating that, claiming that it's not addictive. But it is because whenever you look at a pornographic image, it releases dopamine in the mind, in the brain. There have been studies that prove this. So every time you look at a pornographic image, you get a hit. It releases this chemical, dopamine. And it gets you, it's a kind of high in a sense. And you become dependent on it to maintain a stable mood, right? So it becomes very addictive. It's addictive as cocaine or even more so. Uh, so this is a huge problem. And a lot of younger people and older people are addicted to it. And they kind of despair because it's very hard to quit. Very hard to quit. I've talked with people who were in tremendous despair. They've gone to confession week after week after week, and they can't seem to break it. Um, the approach that I think is the most helpful is to treat it like any other addiction. Uh, there are 12-step programs that work really well for things like alcoholism, drug addiction, compulsive overeating. There also are 12-step programs for pornography. And I highly recommend referring people to those. Um, you know, how do you find them? If you go on, online and search for 12-step uh, pornography addiction, things come up. Uh, I personally have referred people to two programs in particular they've had success with. Uh, one is called SA Lifeline, the letter S, the letter A, Lifeline. If you do a search online for the SA Lifeline Foundation, they have online meetings. They're private meetings online via Zoom where people meet, they talk about the 12 steps. Uh, this is a group only for men, but it's very confidential, where they help people to work through the 12 steps and to break free from the addiction. I've referred a number of people to them over the years who had a lot of success with this group. Another group is called Sexaholics Anonymous. Um, a lot of the people involved in it are pornography addicts, and it works with both men and women. But I, I personally believe that uh, treating it like an addiction and referring people to 12-step programs is the way to go. I've seen it really work in people's lives. Very, very good advice. Thank you, Father Deacon Anthony. Father Daniel, Father Michael, anything to add on this important topic? Well, it, yeah, I think it's one of those uh, struggles these days. I think accessibility certainly is is part of the part of the issue um, and and its prevalence. But I think it's also, you know, there there is, it's 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 the false promise of intimacy that that doesn't satisfy uh, the heart, right? I mean, and I think sometimes uh, they, I've read some interesting research about the role that anxiety sometimes plays in porn addiction. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, people who are prone to anxiety may have, may suffer from uh, more temptation than others in, in this particular uh, arena. And so, you know, there is this, this desire. So, so when, whenever I've given counsel, you know, for those that are, are struggling, I, I, I encourage them to do a couple things and they know that this is helpful at all, but I, I encourage them, first of all, to, to talk to the Lord honestly about what they're being tempted by <laughs> at that moment, you know, to, to come to the Lord, to, to speak to the Lord and tell him, you know, that Lord, I'm being tempted by this, you know, to, to sort of speak the temptation, to call it out into the light. Um, now, obviously make sure you're by yourself at that moment, you know, and you're not, not around in the, by a crowd, but I, I also, I, I encourage them. And these are, again, these are just sort of more, things to sort of work through in the moment um i also encourage them to 
develop a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And, and by this, I mean, Lord, I, I thank you that you have made me a man, that you have made me a woman. You've given me these desires, which are meant for self-giving. And I thank you that, you know, this, this gift that you've given to me right now, I'm struggling with temptation, but Lord, I want to give this back to you in the best way possible. And I offer you praise and thanksgiving. And, you know, the, the devil can cannot abide a thankful heart. And, and I think there's a certain way in which orienting the temptation or orienting the attention away from the object that the devil is trying to put forward and instead turning it over and making it an act of worship and a calling out to God for help. And then find a way to give of yourself. You know, again, our sexuality is meant for self-giving. I, I, I was going to say before, I talked only about the man and the woman coming together in sexuality. There's a beautiful passage in this document. I don't want to read it right now, but where it talks about uh, virginity and uh, this, this, the orientation of our, our, our sexual being as towards self-gift. It's given in a different way through a, a life of, of celibacy or a life of virginity. Uh, but it's it's meant for the same kind of self-giving, just expressed differently in that life as it is in married life. And so the devil likes to do nothing more than turn this, something that was meant for self-giving and make it about ourselves, make it about ourselves. So when we turn it around and say, okay, I'm going to put my energy now into giving myself in other ways. I'm going to go, you know, at the church and help out. I'm going to go pray for somebody. I'm going to go do something social. Those those kinds of remedies are very practical. Now, with addiction, uh, it's it's a definite, you know, you, it's good to get counseling. And I'm not trying to say all you need to do is just do what I've suggested. But those are just some tips or advice that I've I've given in, in confession. Very good. Yeah, I've, I've had, um, actually, I'll, I'll go from another angle, Father, on, on that great advice. And um, I remember um, sometimes I've had phone calls from wives, angry, uh, wives who have caught, um, who have found out that their husbands are viewing pornography uh, on the family computer, and because they forgot to erase their browser or history and so forth, and um, it really, it it really brings mistrust. It breaks the trust, which is the foundation uh, of a of a married well any any relationship, but particularly a married relationship. And I've met with these men who come who come uh, with like shame, such a great shame that it's like a a big ball and chain around them, and they're carrying it and so forth. And and uh, they're very frank discussions with with, uh, with those caught in in this addiction or or the beginning of addiction. And um, so there's there's shame to deal with. And uh, the reiteration that uh, despite these these acts that you've done is that God still loves you and re- and remember that remember um, actually it's not the f- it's one of the first words uh, here it is it's in the 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 whole history of salvation attests to the incredible love of God for the human person it's from that that document and and uh, so to reiterate that. But then also to to look at why are you doing this? It's not just what what you've done, but why are you doing this? So it's a number of sessions I would sit with them as a type of counseling to figure out well why is it loneliness? What's happening? And and again, are are you having difficulty in giving the gift of self? 
and so forth. And 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 often it's looking for love without realizing that you're looking for love. And um, it's a disordered thought. It's a disordered action because it's not based in self-gift, but just not dealing with reality in one and just looking for self towards self. It's introspective. And um, so uh, just kind of working on that and accountability will help too. Um, and I, I, I know that there are sorts of software programs out there for accountability on your computer and your phone and so forth. But the most important aspect to help someone out, uh, especially if it's an addiction, is also what you've said is looking at it as an addiction and dealing with it as that, but also human interaction. Human interaction. While I think that any sort of even online 12-step program is good, one in person is even better. And and we're growing up in an, uh, now growing up, I am growing up, but we're in a time in our society where the parents of children today ha- are are almost um, online quite a bit, if not as much as their own children, and so they may have already been drawn away from what it means to be a loving family because they've been the technology ha- can have an effect upon us. That's where we need to use it as a, as a, um, uh, you know, with some sort of discernment, with wisdom on the technology that we have, and uh, so um, that human action, interaction is important. I think in in person, uh, in order to incarnate the love that we're looking for, whether it be with our spouse or whether it be with a friend or even a counselor. So. Really, really valuable and excellent advice. Um, yeah, thank you. That's a, it's a wonderful kind of pastoral approach to a very, very difficult and, and prevalent problem. Um, all right. Um, we're going to kind of transition to a, a, a bit of a, uh, I guess, the next step along the road of our discussion on, on human sexuality. Um, the Catechism has a section on offenses against the dignity of the person at the beginning of life. Um, and again, a lot of this stuff is in the news right now, so we're going to try to touch on some of these things to to help uh, help us to pastorally approach the culture. So I'm going to kind of bridge two topics here, um, or, or two sections. Um, the Catechism in uh, 869 to 873 talks about the necessity of a marriage to be fruitful, right? And I think we've already covered that, and and that that beautiful teaching of uh, husband and wife you know, uh, having children and creating a domestic church, right, for the faith to grow, for the education of children, and for the mutual benefit of the spouses. It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. But Father Daniel, I wanted to ask you um, an issue that comes up a lot, or at least uh, for myself, we know uh, several couples who struggle with infertility, um, where they you know, kind of encounter the church's teaching. They love the church's teaching. They would be wonderful parents, but for some reason, the Lord has given them that cross of infertility. Um, so I guess, number one, how do we help those couples understand um, that particular struggle? And then number two, um, you know, the culture will float, well, just have in vitro fertilization. Just go, you know, do it, do it artificially. I mean, you're going to have a child. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
Um, so how do we kind of balance, you know, and the church says, well, no, that's, that's, that's forbidden, right? And for good reason. So how do we kind of balance that, you know, that struggle versus that easy, well, that expensive, but out there and very prevalent uh, kind of solution to that problem? Yeah, well, first, I think we have to, and I, we've alluded to this, uh, you know, look at the nature of the, the sexual act within marriage, that, that the sexual act, this act of self-giving between spouses through, uh, through, through the union of, of man and woman together uh, has two, two key dimensions uh, to, in order to, to make it a, uh, a, a blessed act within marriage, that it have a, a unitive dimension and a procreative dimension. The unitive dimension, you know, for the good, the union of the spouses to, to build each other up, to edify, it's actually a grace-bearing act in, uh, within the covenant of marriage. It's, it's a way of renewing your covenant uh, through uh, through the union of of the body of the husband and wife, it's a very beautiful uh, thing for husband and wife. And if if a couple struggles with infertility, that doesn't mean that that unitive dimension should not be celebrated as part of their expression. Even, but 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 with the hope that God might intervene on the procreative side. So there is always that hope. Now I don't want to pre- present it a, a false hope. Uh, especially if there have been reasons, but there's certainly biblical precedent for the idea of of uh, those uh, couples who have struggled with infertility, even late in life, and yet God somehow intervenes, and it's a blessing. And I've known couples that have had that blessing, um, where they thought they couldn't have kids, and suddenly, you know, they have a, a child, and uh, you know, it, it is a tremendous blessing. the 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 church's teaching is that, in the very least, that should be open to life. Now. Uh, this this openness means, in other words, you're not taking any measure uh, to uh, to restrict the, um, uh, the the mutual exchange of that gift of fertility that that comes through uh, through the expression of the bodies in in union. So this this idea being, you're not you know using condoms, you're not using uh, you know any chemical uh, mechanism or whatever it is. You're still open to to God's gift of life, even if you don't think it might not happen. Um, or if you don't think it will happen. So, so that unitive and procreative dimension, so long as, as they have integrity in, in, in the act, it's, it's very important. Keeping in mind that sexuality is itself an act of self-gift. It is a way of, of giving self. There are many ways to give of oneself as, as a husband and wife uh, when it comes to supporting new life. For instance, uh, adoption is certainly one uh, that uh, that many people uh, explore and uh, and receive great blessings from and, and certainly a blessing for the children uh, that have that uh, that are adopted that are welcomed into a family foster care also sometimes becomes a, a solution for many people um, there can also be sort of a sort of charitable self giving um, that uh, you know towards the needs of children uh, caring for them I mean this is they have many couples who do that. So, so there are other means to either welcome children into your home or to to give of yourself towards towards the needs of children and and perhaps families that are also struggling as well. So I would offer that first part. The second part um, related to like in vitro fertilization, you know, the, some of the the issues related to that um, have to do with the fact that yes, you you might well you will conceive more than likely. Uh, and uh, but it's not just going to be one 
child that's conceived, very often you have multiple children uh, who are who are conceived in that process, um, and uh, and and the process itself is uh, is is morally objectionable because you know in, in the clear teaching of Pope Saint John Paul II, and as affirmed by the Catholic Magisterium, the idea is that you know a child has a right to be conceived within the natural act of of marriage of a union a bodily union of husband and wife and so and so as a result of of in vitro fertilization in that process that's that's not how a child is conceived and then once you have these uh these newly conceived ch- children that are implanted uh you know whichever healthy ones grow you kind of get to pick and choose which ones you want to keep and then you you scrape off the remaining ones and then they they die. So it's there's an, an abortive, uh, an abortion essentially that occurs as a result of that process. So it's a, it's it's one of those things where you you understand the desire to have a child and and you can completely respect and and be empathetic towards that, but you've got to choose uh, moral and righteous means to do that. So it's not a, a getting a child at any cost because it's a tremendous cost. Um, and so you have to you have to define those moral means to do that. So I'll I'll stop there. Very very good points. And I, I don't really recall if the catechism mentions this or not, or I read it someplace else. But the crisis of frozen human embryos in cold storage. I think there's there's millions millions just sitting in in laboratory freezers um, with with human souls. Right. That they got, you know, even though it's a, a illicit process, um, God still gives a soul when when sperm and egg come together um, and they're just sitting there, humans in, in cold storage. And that's it's a real tragedy. It really is. Um, and it's created this crisis that there's no easy answer for. Um, and it's just it's it's very, very tragic. Um, well, speaking of of tragedy, or at least uh, kind of a, a mixed bag right now we're experiencing in the United States to, to move us to our, our next topic. Um, the Catechism 880 to 884 talks about abortion um, and my how the, the landscape in the United States has changed, um, you know, since, since the Dobbs decision. Um, you know, we're seeing nothing but uh, anger and vitriol and uh, attacks against churches and crisis pregnancy centers. Um, it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be pro-life. And at the same time, it's, it's, a very ten- it's a very nervous time to be pro-life. And so we've entered into this new phase in the pro-life movement in the United States. Um, and so really, I wanted to t- discuss with, with Father Deacon Anthony um, kind of to brainstorm, because um, the church has a teaching moment right now, I think. The church has always been very consistent, right? The taking of innocent human life at any phase, but especially when it's most innocent, is always gravely sinful, right? We've taught that forever. But now we have an opportunity, now that the convert, now that, you know, the shouting, it's hard to have a conversation when you're shouting at people, but if we teach correctly with empathy and, and with love, you know, hopefully the Lord will bring about that conversion. So I wanted to have some brainstorming on how can we as church right now um, present our teaching on the sanctity of life um, in order to kind of move the culture, at least make the culture a little bit more open to having a conversation. 
Yeah, I, I think the place to begin is with educating our own people, Catholics. When Roe versus Wade was overturned, which still blows my mind, I never thought I'd see that happen. But when it was overturned, um, I saw social media light up with hatred and rage. A lot of it from people who I know are Catholic, not just Catholic in name only, but who attend church regularly. There are people I know who are very involved in their parishes who were enraged and horrified when Roe versus Wade was overturned. Uh, one of the uh, online Catholic uh, Facebook groups that I belong to, uh, it filled up with posts from people who were furious about Roe versus Wade being overturned, saying their rights as women was taken away. And that shocked me. There's so many people who care enough about Catholicism to be part of a Catholic online group were horrified and upset about Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I think what it came down to is our culture has framed this as an issue of, of rights. Um, you know, as a woman, you have a right to control your body. As a woman, you have the right to reproductive health. So they've used a lot of words and terminology to make this an issue of rights, where they've danced around what actually is happening, which is a human life is being snuffed out. Um, after this decision came down, I made the decision that weekend at both of the parishes that I serve to preach on the Catholic teaching on abortion. I figured I was going to get very basic. Um, so what I did was I, I explained why Catholicism, why Christianity, since the very beginning, has opposed abortion. You know, I talked about every human being ma being made the image and likeness of God, the sanctity of human life. Uh, but I went beyond that also, and I talked about why government has a responsibility to protect every life, including life in the womb. Because, you know, the most basic purpose of any government, most basic purpose of any law is to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And one lie our culture has really pushed is that, well, if you're opposed to abortion, that's fine for you, but you can't legislate morality, or you can't force your religious beliefs on others through law. The purpose of law is to protect those who cannot protect themselves, and no one's more defenseless than a person in the womb. So I really addressed those points, uh, but that's me talking to two parishes, right? I think we as a church need to really engage the culture and explain why we are opposed to this. We need to begin with our own Catholics, our own, you know, people who come to church Sunday after Sunday, who really may not understand why the church opposes abortion. Where often we assume they know, we assume they know, but I was surprised to see how many really don't, they don't really get it. So I think we need to begin there. Excellent points. Yes. Excellent points. Yeah. Catech catechizing those in the pews um, is very important. Um, also for changing the culture, because when they see uh, division within our own church, and I think it's just those those old you know those old hot hardliners who are just holding holding up progress, right? Um, no, this is the perennial teaching of the church um, on the on the beauty um, and infinite value and the dignity of every human person from conceptual from conception to natural death. Uh, it's really a beautiful teaching that we can't give way on, nor should we, because it's beautiful. So thank you, Father Deacon Anthony. All right, on to something uh, uh, controversial again, <laughs> artificial contraception. Um, 885 to 891 are the paragraphs in Christ our Pascha. And I wanted to ask our priests, um, because you've taken couples through, through marriage preparation. And I think this is another one of those, those issues where you get a, a good couple, or maybe they're coming to church every Sunday, and then you get to this question of artificial contraception, and they're not on the same page. 
Um, and so pastorally in your, in your ministry and kind of guiding people through marriage preparation, um, what has been some effective strategies for you to get a couple who's coming to you for the Holy Mystery of Crowning to, to accept the church's teaching and to, to have that openness uh, to conceiving human life? I would say that one of the one of the one of the prime reasons to have marriage preparation is uh, to help the couple to come to understand what marriage is all about from the perspective of the Creator um, uh, and the Savior of us, and how marriage was there at the beginning, but even now it still plays a role in the salvation of not just the spouses, but their family and indeed the whole world. You know, that's one. So it, it takes marriage to something, to more than a, an understanding, more than just about themselves, one. And uh, because they, they come in with presuppositions of what marriage is, most of the time, even if they've been avid uh, participants in the life of the church in terms of worship and social outreach and and uh, community building and so forth that uh, there's a huge influence of the world and how the world views marriage now simply as a contractual uh, setup between two individual persons uh, or or a person and a thing or a person and themselves and so forth and so so it's it's helping to reframe marriage for them one and the ends of marriage which are again for the spouses and for the uh, procreation and raising of children, the family, the domestic church. And then it's speaking about the, uh, the I also speak to them about the, how they reflect the love of the Trinity, how the Trinity becomes the model for marriage in terms of self-giving, complete self-giving to one another, and then receiving that love uh, and fullness. And, and I said, it's easy for God to do because God's perfect. It's difficult for us to do because, well, we're not God. Uh, but we're to reflect that. He's made us in his image and likeness, and we reflect that. So with regard to artificial contraception, I said, so the whole point of, of the unitive act, along with the procreative side of it, the sexual act, is that you're giving yourself comp in a physical manner, but more than just physical, uh, but definitely physical, to your spouse, completely. Everything of who you are, this is the intention. Everything of who I am to my spouse, right? It's not about me. But if you use artificial contraception, let's just say we throw a condom on. Honey, I'm giving you everything who I am except my seed. How is that imitating God? Or using the pill or any other form of artificial contraception, the same sort of thing. I'm not willing to give myself to you. And it's often framed in the world, oh, it's because we don't want children. Well, this is the thing. Not only are we sexual beings, and it's a gift from God, but there's a responsibility associated with all that we've been given by God, right? We have free will, but there's a responsibility that goes with free will. Um, Mother Teresa, God bless her, Saint, I guess Saint Teresa of Calcutta now. Uh, I met her once here in, uh, here in Canada, in Ottawa. I was in high school, I, a bunch of us asked the principal if we could go, and, and Father Lenny said, absolutely, here's the, here's the money for the bus. And off we went, and we got late, we got there late, but we 
we saw a group of people moving, so we just joined them. They're going to the hill, the Parliament Hill. And they, in fact, were a group of people that walked across Canada to meet Mother Teresa. And so we got to, to, to see her, like, up as close as I am to this computer screen, you know, never touched her or anything. But there was, uh, this is back in the late, uh, in the 80s, the early 80s, and th there was a CBC, that's the national government-sponsored television. Um, uh, there's an interviewer, Barbara Frum, who interviewed uh, Mother Teresa and said she was very frustrated with Mother Teresa. And finally, she said, in the end, in the end, Mother Teresa, doesn't a woman have a choice? And she says, of course a woman has a choice. And Barbara Frum's going, I got her, you know, and the look in their face, her face. And the mother tree says, a woman has a choice as to enter into that sexual act that has as possibility a conception of a child or not to enter into it. So there's the exercise of, of responsibility within free will. It's not just to say, oh, because I can have sex with my spouse, I'm going to have sex anytime that we desire but it's use it responsibly. That, I think that's the basis of natural family planning in, in some way, um, but, uh, but it's because the two of them are very much connected, artificial contraception and natural family planning. I've spoken too much already. I'm sorry, I'll let Father speak. <laughs> I don't know that I would have much to add to that, Father, because I think you've, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, withholding fertility as, as, a, as a way of withholding that that self-gift and you know in the language of self-giving to withhold that introduces really a lie into as as pope saint john paul ii would say a lie in the language of the body because it's not really fully a self-gift at the same time there is <clears throat> i think a, a need to to trust in providence right uh you know i i remember one of my instructors at franciscan university uh used to say you know couples that say well you know, we're, we're not going to have a child for the first year because we want to get to know each other better. He said, well, if you don't know each other, why are you getting married? <laughs> you know, that, was the, that was the interesting question. Uh, and I, I will say that you don't, the best way to get to know your spouse is by having a child together. Uh, you, you, get to, you get to know yourself, you get to know your spouse, and, uh, and, you, and you grow together through that. Through that. You know, I've, I've known couples who have refused to have children, um, and, and you, there is a certain immaturity uh in that refusal and and it affects their their love for one another they 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 kind of tend towards a little bit of selfishness in that now i'm not making judgments on people that can have kids that's not i'm saying people who deliberately choose not to have children um and that's why it's such an important gift and to open yourself to providence you know that the lord will provide now there are legitimate reasons the catechism mentions that there are legitimate reasons where you know for a time you you won't be able to, have, you probably can't afford or can, are unable to have children. And so, you know, you can use uh, methods like you've alluded to in natural family planning. Um, but the other thing about it that I think is important to recognize is that the, and not many people know this, uh, but that the pill has a tertiary effect uh, in that it acts, it creates a hostile lining uh, within the uh, the uterus uh, hostile, hostile to implantation of a, of a newly conceived egg, and so uh, a newly conceived child, and so it actually has an, an a, a tertiary abortifacient effect, uh, or there is the risk of that. And so, you know, to use uh, the pill as as an example is uh, is to really open yourself up to uh, cooperating in, in an abortion. Um, 
Now, the IUD is another method that is itself an abortifacient. It's intended to, to act as an abortifacient, but the pill has at least that as its tertiary effect. So it's, it's, it's something to, um, you can't really use it morally, um, not, not according to, uh, to Catholic uh, teaching and natural law. So that's the only thing I would add to that. Good. Thank you both. And, and we've, we've danced around this, this uh, topic, and it was going to be our next topic anyway. And on top of that, we have a question on, the, on natural family planning. So, Father Deacon Anthony, if you would like to tackle that, that question we received in the Q&A uh, concerning natural family planning, uh, by all means. Certainly. Uh, we received a question in the Q&A, Q, Q a very good question. Essentially, it was asking, um, how is something such as uh, interrupting sexual intercourse or the withdrawal method, as it's known, how is that different than natural family planning? Uh, that's the essence of the question. And it connects to a broader question, too, which is how is contraception different than natural family planning? Why is NFP allowed or accepted by the church and other methods are not? Well, there, there are a couple of reasons. The first one is this. Um, it does not interrupt the sexual act. Um, the problem with things like artificial contraception is that it treats um, the sexual act and it treats fertility as something that needs to be stopped or blocked. You know, when you think about it, you know, barrier methods are, are, are blocking the act from completion, from its intended completion, um, or pills. You know, typically we take a pill if we have a disease we want to get rid of or control. When you treat fertility that way, what are you really saying? Um, so NFP respects the sexual act and respects a woman's natural cycle of fertility. So the problem with things like withdrawal method is it, it doesn't it doesn't really follow through, you know. And because of that, it's interrupting the sexual act. It's it's breaking it. It's disrupting what's meant to be completed. Um, now. As I said, NFP respects fertility and actually treats it with, with tremendous respect and it works with it. You're looking at a woman's natural cycle when she can and cannot get pregnant and you're cooperating with something that already exists. It's not introducing an artificial uh, barrier or an artificial drug to stop that. It works with something that God created. Uh, it's respecting that. It's respecting it. But the other thing too is this. Uh, NFP requires an openness to life. And every sexual act is to include an openness to life. Now, that's important. So even if a couple uh, doesn't intend to get pregnant, if they're practicing NFP, they know that there was always there was always a chance. You know, it may be a tiny chance, but there's always a chance, and that oftentimes uh, creates conversations, right? You know, are we if we have relations this weekend, there there's a possible consequence. Are we able to handle that? How do we deal with that? That actually can help a relationship. Rather than treating sex as something you just have whenever you want for selfish reasons, uh, when you have to have a conversation about consequences, it kind of frames sex with the appropriate level of awe, with the appropriate level of respect, and it treats the human body with respect as well, rather than it being an instrument of pleasure. So that's another thing too. Uh, things such as artificial contraception or even the withdrawal method, they don't really include an openness to life. Uh, and in many people's minds, they're, they're stopping they're stopping uh, life from happening, right? And that's deceptive because, as we know, uh, condoms don't always work. Uh, artificial contraception doesn't always work. The withdrawal method very often does not work. 
but people who engage in those things uh, thinking that they're stopping any chance of, of life from coming, they're fooling themselves. And that's what leads to the abortion mentality in the end. Uh, probably the most honest treatise I saw in favor of abortion uh, a few years back was written by Hugh Hefner you know, from Playboy. He wrote a treatise defending abortion, and he, it was all over the internet. I saw it a few different places. And he said this, for a woman to be truly liberated, she must be able to have sexual pleasure whenever she wants with no consequences. And then, you know, Mr. Hefner went on to say, the reality is that contraception doesn't always work. Uh, condoms don't always work. There's a failure rate. So to be truly liberated, the woman must have the option to terminate the pregnancy. He was being honest. He was being honest. Our contraceptive mentality lives off of the myth that we're stopping any chance of new life, and we're not. We're not. When you're engaging in NFP, you know that there's always a chance, so that openness to life is still there. Very good. Thank you, Father Deacon Anthony. Yeah, that's a a good, complete answer. And I think as well, um, even among Catholics, um, there's still, they just don't know what NFP is yet. You know, maybe they had really poor marriage preparation um, and this it was never presented to them or they said, ah, that sounds like too much work. We're just going to do artificial contraception. Um, but there's some really great resources from our eparchies and, and Roman Catholic diocese and archdiocese. Um, and it's as simple as attending a class, you know, an hour on, on a week and really kind of getting to know the different methods of, of natural family planning. And again, I think it's an investment in a relationship. Right. When you're investing in a relationship and you're going to learn about something together, um, that can have that's very, very positive. Right. And it strengthens those bonds. So if you don't know about it, yeah, find, find a local NFP class. They are very, very helpful. Uh, Father Michael, I'll say to the men who are listening, go to an NFP class with with your wife mm-hmm. and listen to listen to the teaching on how a woman's body works with regard to uh, fertileness and periods of fertileness and periods of non-fertileness. And you're just going to be absolutely gaps, gobsmacked uh, with just how it works. You've, I'm, sh- I'm sure you don't know what it is, but go and just be amazed at how God has created a woman. There's that question, what is a woman? <laughs> Proverbs, last chapter of Proverbs, that's a woman. Everything and part of that gift of this is the ability to be fertile or unfertile, and what happens in the body. And you can be in awe just to see how God has created us in this manner. It reflects His glory. And and just to build on that too, I would say that NFP, the the cycle of NFP, and uh, if you're if you're using it at a time, you know to. delay you know pregnancy and so you're you're using the there is there is almost a liturgical aspect to it too like we have times of feasting and fasting right you know and 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 so you know there are times where men (laughs) you have to fast you have to fast and you have to find other ways of giving yourself to your wife and non-sexual expressions of love uh and uh you know as men this is this is an aspect where we have an opportunity to grow in in virtue and self-sacrifice and uh and then so that it, it means that when we come together with our wives it's an even more beautiful uh moment of 
of, of feasting and, and celebration as a, as, a, as a couple in that, that covenant love, that, that nuptial covenant, that, there is an aspect of that, that where we, we are learning a spiritual discipline that we can learn one if we, if we apply the lesson. So that was just a thing I wanted to add to that. Very, very good advice. All right, we've got the last part to do in a short amount of time. So we're going to do our best. But we, we've looked at uh, offenses against the dignity of the person at the beginning of life. Now let's take the tail end of life. So the offenses against the dignity of the person um, towards the, the latter part of life. So this is Christ Arposca 989 to 910. So I'm going to kind of combine a couple of different things here. So Number one, to take care of an aging parent or a grandparent, family member, um, can be a tremendous blessing, right, as they enter into that final phase of their life, uh, especially when sickness and pain and those kind of issues arise. It can be a tremendous opportunity for self-giving, for, self, for sacrifice, um, for entering into helping another person carry their cross. Um, it can be a really, really beautiful thing. Um, so, number one, what are some pastoral considerations um, that we need to give towards taking care of an aging family member or sick family member? Um, and then, uh, so Father Daniel, I'd like you to cover that. Um, and then we'll give Father Michael the last word because uh, I know in, in Canada, the, the push for euthanasia is ever more vigorous. So, Father Michael, if you can touch on euthanasia for a couple of minutes. Uh, and we might come back to it in our next webinar because these are very, very important and, and timely topics. So, so Father Daniel. Yeah, boy, and in, in five minutes yeah. or three minutes. Um, so, uh, oh goodness. Uh, yeah, you know, the word compassion means to suffer with um, someone. And, you know, I, I watched my, my father who was a deacon take care of my grandfather in, in his remaining years of life uh, and uh, basically took care of him in their home. And it was such a moment of uh, that he treasures. He even talks about it today about, you know, how close he, he got to, he was always close to his dad, but it was, it was a, a closeness and a, and a way of self-giving that he will never regret uh, being there to, to care for him. Um, you know, uh, there are, boy, there's so many questions that do come up from time to time uh, in, the, in the care of someone who is at the end of life. Uh, basically the teaching, as you've uh, mentioned, Robert, is that it is always wrong to directly and intentionally end the life of a human, innocent human being, uh, that ethical principle remains. So, so then the question becomes, as a person moves towards the end of their life, you know, what are some, some constants that we need to always be thinking about? Well, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the ordinary measures that, that a person needs, the ordinary means of, of care, uh, such as, you know, water, food, air, those kinds of things that we, that we need. Um, and, uh, but as a person goes through the dying process, they may actually at some point no longer be able to take food. Uh, you know, these are, these are all things that, so, so this is where some of the nuance comes in. The important thing is, to always ensure that the ordinary means are provided, um, you know, and and uh, and, and in, in your care for an individual, uh, extraordinary means. This is where you know I I know some people think they've got to do everything they possibly can, you know, to extend the life of an individual, and that's not the Catholic teaching. 
um, you know, when it comes to extraordinary means. So, so these are all things, and there, there are a lot of different questions that kind of pertain to this, and I, I'd hate, I, don't, I don't feel like I give it enough time. I do want to mention two quick resources, if I might. One is this lovely little book called End of Life Issues, uh, written by a friend of mine, uh, Jason Negri. He's an attorney. He's a classmate of mine at Steubenville. He wrote it for Catholic Answers. It's tremendous, uh, tremendous resource. He actually is the director of something in the United States, which is called the Patients' Rights Council, and I'll post a link to that. He also gave me the name of a wonderful organization in Canada that is sort of a sister or companion organization, uh, which, um, let me see if I can grab that real fast, Father, because you probably are more familiar with it. Um, now, the Euthanasia Prevent Prevention Coalition. Uh, is that something you've heard of? In Canada, Father? No? Okay. So I'll post both of those links. I'm a member. <laughs> oh, you're a member. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, but one of the things this booklet mentions at the end are, are a couple of things that you can do to uh, and, and to uh, to help prepare yourself and your loved ones. Um, and I do want to mention one point, and I'm gonna, and I, it's two, 15 seconds. I think we should talk about this next time. I, I think that the reason why it sounds like we've gotten really negative over the past, you know, these topics like, gosh, you're, you're addressing all these difficult issues and they're all very negative, like don't do this and don't, you know, the, the Catholic teaching is a profound yes to the gift of life. And what we're seeing are, are really deliberate attacks upon that really almost as a form of iconoclasm. And so I think it would be interesting, maybe in our last time that we get together on this on this topic, or in the topic of the catechism, that maybe we talk about this idea of of the iconoclastic underpinnings, uh, the attacks upon the human person, the image and likeness, and and why we need to address it directly as we have today. So that's the only thing I would add. Yeah. Well, let's let's make that a start in our our final webinar. I think that's good. That's probably a good place to to pick up. Not to cut Father Michael off from talking about euthanasia, um, but there, there's one more resource that I did want to throw out to every, uh, everybody that uh, has been great. Uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Yes. Um, fantastic, especially for uh, questions surrounding uh, end of life and making those difficult, sometimes very complicated medical decisions for a loved one. They also have great resources for uh, making a will, making advanced directives, power of attorney, all that kind of legal stuff, um, because it, it can be very, very complicated. I, I have a, a friend who's a moral theologian, and even she uh, used the National Catholic Bioethics Center um, to, make, to, to help her navigate some family issues at the end of life. So, see, that's the thing, and, and that's why it's such a blessing that we have this Becoming Byzantine series, to get those resources out there, um, to get them into the, the general Catholic population so that you can use them and you're not feeling uh, behind the eight ball when you have to enter into these, these difficult and stressful situations uh, with a family member. So the church is always there to help and point you in the right direction. So we promise we will pick up with kind of talking about these end of life issues in our next webinar. Um, our next webinar will be on August 28th. August 28th. So we hope you will all join us again next month. Uh, my thanks to Father Daniel, Father Michael, Father Deacon Anthony for, uh, again, a wonderful and very important uh, discussion basically on the church's gospel of life, uh, the beautiful teaching of, of the gospel of life. So 
Father Daniel, would you say a prayer, a brief closing prayer to take us out? Sorry, I'm thinking about the wonderful prayers we have in the back of the catechism uh, that, uh, that kind of help, uh, help us to orient our life towards prayer. And so let's, uh, why don't we say the prayer to the holy angels? Because Robert, you're going to be coming out to, uh, to speak at our, our parish pilgrimage on the holy angels. And you just had an article Next recently month. on the holy angels. So, I did. so why, don't we, why don't we offer a quick prayer to the holy angels to watch over us and guard our life. Blessed is our God, always, now, and ever, and forever. Amen. All you heavenly powers, all holy angels and archangels, pray to God for us sinners. Amen. And may the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's also a short prayer. <laughs> Amen to that. Thank you all very much again for joining us. We're so happy that you've been with us. And until next month, uh, our love and prayers go with you all. So, glory to Jesus Christ. Glory, glory be forever. forever.